0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Exchange, a conversation between Reuters, Breaking Views, columnists, and the people who matter in economics, finance, business, and politics. My name is Pete Sweeney. I'm here chatting with Tobias Harris, author of recently published The Iconoclast, is a great book about ex-Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and the New Japan. Um, I reviewed it, reviewed it back in August. It's a good read. I highly recommend it. Um, Tobias, for those who don't know him, he's got a really solid Japan resume. Resume been around there for a while. He did a stint on the staff of Kiichiro Asao when he was shadow foreign minister for the Democratic Party of Japan. Today he's a senior vice president at Taneo Intelligence and he's on our show to talk about what's happening with Abe's successor Yoshihide Suga. He's having a bit rough time of it. Tobias, welcome on the show.
0: Hi, Pete. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, good. So it's been a while since we've chatted, and a lot of water has passed under the bridge. For our listeners who aren't intimate with what's been happening in Japan since we had this transition of power, Abe had to step down for health reasons. Um, It was a little bit unexpected. He had quite a long tenure, the longest-serving prime minister. Now Suga has kind of stepped in, but it's right in the middle of pandemic. There's been kind of a a, a assumption or a, a track record, I guess, of prime ministers following extremely popular prime ministers failing to fill their shoes or kind of being damp squibs. Uh, Suga seems to have had some trouble with his popularity ratings. Can you just let people know what, how he's been doing and, and what's going on in Japan?
0: Sure. Well, I, I count myself among the people who were... Uh, at least cautiously optimistic about Suga's ability to succeed Abe, um, and not even because of Suga himself, but because I feel that uh, what we've seen over the last several years is that the Japanese public uh, has wanted uh, stability above all, And that, of course, was what Suga was promising. He had been Abe's chief cabinet secretary for the entirety of his second administration. He promised to continue Abe's policies. And generally, I mean, just as we saw when he took over, I mean, his approval ratings were among the highest a Japanese prime minister had ever uh, had ever received. And that, you know, I think all of that pointed to this desire for stability on the part of the public. What's happened since then, of course, is the pandemic and uh, Japan has its third wave has been worse than anything that it had seen uh, since the pandemic began last year. Uh, You've seen not only the highest case numbers, but just uh, more severe cases, more deaths, greater toll taken on the medical system and all of that has contributed one to very poor marks for the government's handling uh, of the pandemic and then that in turn has translated into uh, really quite poor approval ratings for suga and the problem with that is that suga doesn't have a whole lot of time to turn things around he was elected in september to to fill the remaining year of abe's term as leader of the liberal Liberal democratic party so in september there's going to be another ldp leadership election And on top of that, the diet's four-year session or four-year term ends in October. So you're going to have to have a general election uh, no later than October of this year. So he's not in – the clock is ticking on his tenure. Yeah, you know, the LDP I think has been impatient and is watching the approval ratings tick down and is wondering um, if they're going to have to change horses, so to speak, in September. And and that really is where we stand right now. You know, is you know Suga able to stabilize s- his situation, uh, get out of the hole he's in as far as handling the pandemic is concerned? Uh, maybe get the vaccine vaccination campaign going uh, and translate that into a mandate of its own later this year.
1: Well, yeah, Japan was getting fairly good reviews about its management of the pandemic, and then we had kind of a bit of a, it seemed like a wheel fell fell off, and uh, and cases shot back up, and we we're going back into a sort of lockdown. Um, I personally was looking forward to, you know, being able to travel there. It seemed like it was right around the corner, and then everything kind of came to a screeching halt. What happened?
0: Well, I mean, to some extent, you know, when when we talk about the pandemic anywhere. I mean, you know, we're seeing the similar similar phenomena everywhere. I mean, you know what's been interesting to watch is, uh, you know, Japan's course in some ways has been uh, almost exactly the same path that South Korea has followed. Um, and you know, we've seen South Korea's cases shoot up, and and now of course um, they're they've imposed controls and and I think have it more under control. But you know, it's it's the same thing. I think people got a little lax. You know, felt that they had. They had had managed it and and kept case numbers at a stable level but then of course you know as a result they they, you know things gradually reopen of course uh, the controversial issue as far as Suga is concerned was his commitment to the travel subsidy program the go-to program uh, and also the go-to eat or go-to travel program then the go-to eat program to promote dining out and and he, he took a lot of heat uh, for those policies to subsidize, uh, you know, people spending. And, and you can understand his position, of course. You know, Japan had gotten used to record numbers of tourists every year. And, of course, there's the, the, the hospitality industry, the dining, all of them have been hard hit. And so you understand where he's coming from. But all of that just goes to show that, the, you know, there was a desire to have some sort of normalcy. You know, not being in Japan, I can't say to what, you know, what exactly everyone was doing in terms of, you know, not respecting the so-called three Cs that Japan articulated last year. Um, but I mean, you know, I do think you just get to a point where there's pandemic fatigue, and as a result, uh, people aren't as careful, and, and cases start creeping up again. I mean, I think where Suga has gotten the blame, and and not uh, not uh, not unreasonably, is that I mean, he did you know try, while trying to strike this balance between protecting the economy and providing public health measures. I mean, he has been very deliberate. Very slow to act, and, and maybe that's justified. Uh, but as far as the Japanese public is concerned, they've watched this happen and and really feel that the government needed to be much more aggressive. In, you know, as numbers crept up, uh, much more willing to uh, impose, you know, declare a state of emergency, impose some some social distancing guidelines. Um, and now it looks like numbers are creeping back down after almost a month of a state of emergency in in Japan's biggest urban areas. But it took a long time for the government to get to that point. And, and that, I think, really has been costly for Suga politically.
1: Can we talk about the condition of the economy? I mean, obviously, he's got some causes for worry and some causes for reassurance. I mean, it does look like price inflation is is at risk of leaning towards deflation again. You know. But there's been other signs of improvement. Stock market is up. It looks like the exchange rate isn't a big negative factor just yet. Um, we had a little bit of positive signs on exports so far. How do you grade, like, in terms of the core economics and his relationship with the Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance? Mm.
0: Uh, well, uh, the Ministry of Finance is is probably not the the, uh, the happiest of ministries, just given uh, you know that you've seen debt finance stimulus package after debt finance stimulus package. You now you look at the outlook, uh, the uh, fiscal outlook now you know, for the. For the rest of the decade, or for the for the entirety of the decade, and you know any talk really of being able to meet the uh, their long term fiscal sustain- sustainability target, which most recently was um, having a primary surplus by 2025. I mean it's pretty much out the window after the kind of uh, deficit spending that we've seen over the last year, and which will, you know is likely to continue. Not that you're seeing, you know, you look at the regular budget for 2021. And I mean the the growth in areas uh, outside of uh, funds needed to finance recovery and to comp- and to fight the pandemic, I mean it was actually relatively modest. But you still have growth. You still have a lot, uh, you know, a major increase in in deficit spending this year. And so I mean the finance ministry, uh, you know, is in some ways taking a backseat and and forced really to go along in some ways with an experiment in just how much debt can japan carry before? <laughs> yeah 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 basically i mean yeah they refuse yeah. to say that and they refuse to accept but you know for all intents and purposes they're playing that game i mean they're 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 gonna see it which is so interesting because far... they're on
1: this they're on this edge right i mean like japan with the aging society with their negative interest rates but what lessons do you think uh, other countries can take from the way that japan has dealt with this you know, in, say, Europe or other countries where you have similar interest rate situations, similar demographics, similar government debt issues, um, and then just looking at Japan, which is the extreme side of a lot of these?
0: Well, I mean, I you know, I think, you know, on the on the positive side, you you know, you know, Japan, and you know, that a lot of that has gone towards infrastructure that that makes Japan just a, a great place to live, you know, and, and really has uh, translated into a you know, really high quality of life uh, for the Japanese people and, you know, across the country, which, you know, that, of course they get, you know, that turns into a story about pork barrel spending and, you know, wasteful infrastructure building in parts of the country that are, that are depopulating. Um, but, you know, if you, you know, if you're familiar with, with Suga's career and his writings and the kind of things he's talked about, uh, you know, ensuring that all Japanese, even in places that are, are backwaters, so to speak, have access really to the same level of public service, you has been a priority for, for the Japanese government. And I mean, so, so yes, they've been spending and they've been running up debts, but I mean, there's been real significance for that. Uh, Has it enabled them to really solve or or overcome the, um, the sort of long-term structural challenges most importantly, the demographic challenge or, you know, moving, you know, encouraging uh, uh, transition to new growth areas. I, you know, I I think the, the record on those fronts is, much more mixed. Um, you know, so ultimately, you know, running this debt without uh, really finding those sources of growth and therefore, you know, long-term, you know, the future sources of tax revenue, you know, that's that's harder to say.
1: What, what about the Olympics? Mm. You know, we've gotten some mixed signals over whether the Japanese government is is making its peace with them not happening or they're still holding on. Um, Like, A, do you think they're, what do you think the government is still realistically thinking that it might happen? And be like what would what would be the financial and psychological impact of it if it if it misses
0: well you know, I want to answer I'll answer the the last part of that first um you know I, I I think the political importance and the psychological importance I think can be overstated you know I I think um, certainly outside of Tokyo I don't, I don't think people have been particularly enthusiastic about the Olympics there there does seem to be I think a lot of enthusiasm among uh, official Tokyo, um, which has been eager, of course, for the, you know, the economic stimulus effect. I mean, way back in 2013, when Japan was awarded the games or Tokyo was awarded the games, you know, there was talk about how it would be the fourth era of Abenomics. So, you know, I, th- I think at the official level, there's been a lot of enthusiasm that has not been matched with the public, and therefore, you know, I I, th- I think last year we saw, you know, I think there was a lot of Questioning that if the Olympics are postponed, if they're canceled, what, you know, what is that going to mean for Abe? And it turned out that actually people were totally fine with it. And I think, you know, the the downsides of holding the Olympics, you know, with with you know, international travelers coming and it leading to a spike in, in cases, I think that the risks of that politically are a lot greater than the risks of, uh, well, a you know, if there was some sort of plan to postpone it again somehow, which you know, that has been discussed, but I don't know how serious any of that is uh, or outright cancellation. I mean, I think economically, uh, you've just given the you know that it's been something that uh, has been planned for um, you know, by the by the tourism industry, by the dining industry, you know, the money spent on the facilities and so on. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I suspect uh, cancellation would be accompanied by uh, some sort of stimulus package. I mean, this is this is pretty much standard practice politically. That would you know so that that whole I think would have to be addressed by the government but uh, you know i I don't actually think it uh, becomes a major strike against suga I mean you know still the bigger strike is you know letting letting the pandemic get out of control um
1: so suga has been behind the digitizing of the Japanese government which um I think everybody has supported for the past twenty years <laughs> is there any place else where he's he's being creative or you I mean, A, I guess with digitization, which would yield pretty good you know, returns in terms of efficiency, do you actually see him getting someplace with that? And are there other areas where you see him being more aggressive or more effective at reform than, than Abe was? Because, I mean, Abe's progress on the reform front was – well, he definitely made some, but, but you know, there were a lot of boxes left unchecked when he, when he stepped down.
0: Yeah, so, so we have – I mean really we're going to see – how how this digi- uh, digitalization of of government services and that, and I think you know the goal from that being that it also encourages more digitalization of the private sector where you know certainly among smaller you know small and medium sized enterprises you don't necessarily see the same embrace uh, of IT sort of looking for areas where there is low hanging fruit for Japan's economy Suga is. You know, I, I think the thing that in some ways sets him apart from Abe is, is Yusuka is really a detail oriented politician. You know, this, he's someone who really has a grasp of policy details. It's something, you know, he and this is an issue I think he's cared about a lot throughout his career. And you know, that may pay off in terms of you know, getting the rollout of their new digital affairs agency this year. Right. You know, really having um, having a sense of, of the right levers to make it happen. But, you know, the, the verdict is very much out on on just how successful that could be compared to previous governments. The other area, I think maybe even more importantly, is his climate pledge. And, you know, it really shows, you know, Abe Paris, you know, Japan's uh, commitment was very modest. Um, Abe talked about the importance of climate change, but never really was able to follow through. There was sort of a lot of hand waving about um, the development of new technologies, but to the extent that. Suga has I think encouraged both movement within the government and then movement in the private sector uh, just through the you know the power of saying we're going to do this again you know I think there are a lot of holes to fill in in the plan uh, to get to carbon neutrality by 2050 but I mean, it is a major contrast, and and, and it really uh, does not make Abe look good. The extent to which Suga was able to come out in you know his first policy speech back in October and you know make this a priority, and and really has forced a response uh, across the Japanese government. We'll, we'll see what they come up with in their um their base you know the next basic energy plan this year as they look at look ahead of their carbon or their electricity mix, their energy mix uh, for this decade. But well, it, What is the it,
1: plan there? Because, I mean, just to interrupt, I mean, like Toyota came out and and just kind of like laid into the government, it asked a lot of hard questions about, you know, how effective or how realistic this plan is, you know, to electrify everything, given the energy mix. You know, it seems like nuclear is still in the freezer. How are they going to do it?
0: That was so one of the more interesting responses we saw after he made his announcement was that there was there was more chatter about you know, a serious push on nuclear energy than we had seen, you know, something, you know, Abe came in, you know, talked about restarts, really wanted to do it. And then the energy just just fizzled out, you know, that there was there was enough local opposition, there was enough just widespread public opposition, uh, legal challenges, you know, and all of that, I think, you know, I th- at some point, Abe just decided he wasn't going to spend political capital to make it happen. And there, there was a little more discussion, I mean, even within his own cabinet, I mean, Suga pushed back against some of it because uh, it does seem that the ground really hasn't been laid uh, with the public yet. But it, but it is hard to see how they do it without uh, a much uh, wider uh, restart of nuclear power uh, than we've seen thus far. But I mean, th- th- there's no question there are some major trade-offs um, they're going to have to address. Uh, they're, they're probably going to have to be a lot more aggressive on um, uh, removing coal from their energy mix, but they're still, you know, of course, they're still building uh, or plans to build um, new coal burning power plants. Adding
1: coal to their energy mix. Yeah, they exactly. You know, so they've,
0: they've got to do that. Still, I mean, it, it still relies when you look at the plan, for example, they put out last month. I mean, they're still depending a lot on you know breakthroughs in battery technology, uh, breakthroughs in carbon capture. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're of course betting on you know low emissions production of of hydrogen. Uh, All of that, you know, of course, remains to be seen, whether that will happen. And so, you know, the plan is not there yet. And, and, you know, of course, he doesn't deserve, you know, you can't give him credit for something that hasn't happened yet. But I think for, you know, for a an effort to reorient a lot of what the Japanese government is focused on and what its priorities will be when it comes to just thinking about growth and where growth should come from i mean i think he deserves credit for that and or maybe that just abe deserves criticism for for not having uh, done that under you know on his watch and you might recall from my book that that was exactly one of the missed opportunities uh, maybe the greatest missed opportunity i think of abe's tenure so it's something to watch it's not done yet but i do think in the short time that suga has been in office i, I mean i think it's it's Right now, it's probably his most significant uh, achievement on the positive side. And but and actually, one more note about that: what it does show, um, you know, I think maybe uh, in case there was any remaining debate about this, that you know, Abe, in some ways, was did did a little bit of marketing uh, when he rolled out the third third arrow back in 2013 and managed to convince everyone that it was about structural reform, um, you know, maybe maybe privatization and liberalization and, and I for me, I looked at the third arrow and I didn't see that at all. I saw this as a, an effort, a state led effort to find new areas of growth. You know, this was uh, industrial policy in the 21st century, uh, you know, a response to the fact that South Korea has its uh, industrial policy plans and China, of course, has its industrial policy plans. Uh, various European countries have their industrial policy plans. And I, and this, to me, looked like Japan's response to that. And I th- think Suka is very much carrying that uh, way of thinking forward doesn't mean that there aren't areas which they, you know, they want to deregulate and encourage the private sector to to do more, but this is very much using a variety of government uh, policy levers to, to shape private behavior.
1: All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have. So thank you so much for joining me, Tobias. I'd like to thank our production team, Freddie Joyner, Sharon Lamb, and Katrina Hamlin. And a final thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com for articles. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and join us again next week for another edition. Thanks, everyone.